Greetings and welcome to Take Back Our Schools. I'm Beth Feely here with my co-host Andrew Gutman, and we're two accidental activist parents who woke up and spoke out about issues we saw in our children's schools. And on this podcast, we tackle those issues as well as some solutions. Teens, smartphones, and 24-7 technology to communicate. What could possibly go wrong? We're going to talk about that topic today um, and others related to parenting our school-age youth with Dr. Leonard Sachs. Dr. Sachs is a practicing family physician, a psychologist, and the author of Girls on the Edge, Boys Adrift, Why Gender Matters, and the New York Times bestseller, The Collapse of Parenting. Welcome, Dr. Sachs. Thanks for inviting me. We originally reached out to you um, over a commentary that you had sent out about that school in Massachusetts that banned cell phones. And once they did that, lo and behold, the kids learned to talk with one another again and engage in class and improve performance. Um, And they appreciate also the peace and quiet uh, that goes along with that. So what are we doing to our kids by letting them have cell phones? And can we put that cell phone genie back in the bottle? You know, one analogy I use when I talk to parents on this topic is alcohol. Suppose that uh, civilization had progressed, but no one had ever discovered how to make an alcoholic beverage until 10 years ago. And then 10 years ago, suddenly people discovered how to ferment grain. And over a 10-year period, we got beer, wine, whiskey liquors, mixed drinks. How long would it take us to figure out that maybe children and 14-year-olds and shouldn't be drinking this? I don't think we'd realize right away. Uh, I think it would take some time. I think that's exactly where we are with regard to smartphones and social media. Uh, these apps can be really toxic for kids. And we're only now beginning to discover that. We're only now getting the research, literally just in in the last two to three years. And the research is changing as the apps are changing. And we can talk more about that if you like. What are we supposed to do as parents? You know, I always talk about evidence-based parenting. That's the title of a presentation I do for parents, evidence-based parenting. We do have research, but we're operating in uncertainty. And, you know, I've been a family doctor now for 33 years. And this is a challenge that family doctors face in many domains. When I started out as a family doctor, uh, when I finished my residency in 1989, the cigarette companies were still claiming that we didn't know for sure that cigarettes caused lung cancer. Uh, The CEOs went before the United States Senate in the 1990s and said, no, there's, there's, there's association, but it doesn't prove causation. It's just a correlation. And some people smoke for 50 years and never get cancer. And some people get lung cancer who have never smoked, which are true statements. But I was advising my patients in 1990 to quit smoking because part of being a physician, part of being a human is you have to make judgments in the face of uncertainty. Right now, that's where parents are. We can talk about the data with regard to smartphones and social media and children and teens, but no one can say that, yes, it's absolutely 100% conclusive. Uh, There are still people out there who claim that, well, you know, it's an association, it's just a correlation, it doesn't prove causation. But I advise parents, you must limit, govern, and guide what your kids are doing with their phones because you can't wait for all the scientists to agree. I mean, all the scientists have now agreed that smoking causes lung cancer. Okay, but it took them decades to do that. What about social media and anxiety and depression? We now have very good data showing that these apps greatly increase the risk of anxiety and depression in children and teens, in girls more than boys. So I believe the evidence is sufficient. You're the parent. You have to exercise what researchers call the precautionary principle, which means if you're not sure it's safe, your kids shouldn't be using it. In the United States, we tend not to apply the precautionary principle. In the United States, we tend to say uh, that that anything is innocent until proven guilty. 
And until we have proven beyond a shadow of a, a doubt that TikTok is harmful, we have no grounds for limiting it. Well, that's very unwise. Innocent until proven guilty, I think is a good principle when an adult has been accused of a criminal offense. But it's not a good principle when you're talking about how your kids should be spending their free time. When you're talking about how your kid spends their free time, that's really important. Uh, there's a wonderful line in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Above everything else, guard your heart, because everything you do flows from it. How you choose to spend your free time is an immensely important decision for a child or teenager, because it's influencing the kind of kid, they're, the kind of grown-up they're going to become. If your son spends his free time killing imaginary people in video games, if your daughter spends her free time scrolling through TikTok videos, that's influencing the kind of person that they are becoming. And I assert, and I think we've got evidence to support this, that it's changing them in an unhealthy way. Would you go as far as to say we should treat cell phones and or social media or certain social media platforms like we treat tobacco, which is to say not allow children under a certain age to okay. have them? So, so I'm a huge fan of Gene Twenge. Gene Twenge is certainly our nation's leading researcher on social media and the influence that social media has on children and teens. And uh, I've cited her. She cited me. Uh, uh, and we correspond by email. And so she published a huge study in 2019 of over 200,000 adolescents. And on the x-axis is time spent on social media. And on the y-axis is the likelihood of becoming anxious or depressed. And there's no increase in that line until you get past 30, 40 minutes a day. And so from 2019 until very recently, when I spoke to parents, I would say, okay, Based on the research and based on this very important study from Gene Twenge, up to 30 minutes a day is okay for teenagers on social media. But I've been following Gene Twenge's research, and her more recent research suggests something different. Her more recent research suggests that social media is harmful beginning at time zero. And I have corresponded with her, and I corresponded with her October 3rd um, of, of this year, 2022. And I said, you know, your more recent study suggests something different from your big 2019 study. Your more recent study suggests that any time on social media is harmful. And you and I both know what's changed. What's changed is TikTok. TikTok is a game changer. TikTok is a profoundly different interaction than Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or anything else that came before it. And TikTok is uniquely harmful. We can talk about why that's so. Is it more addictive? Is that what it is? Okay, we can talk about, but let me just finish my comment about Gene Twenge. So I said, has your guidance changed? And she sent me back an email saying that the evidence now supports a total ban on social media for all kids under 18 years of age because of TikTok. And I said, can I quote that? And she said, yes, I can. you can quote me as saying that the evidence now provides support for a total ban on social media. Certainly the evidence provides support for a total ban on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Look, the United States Senate has just approved by unanimous consent a law that would ban government employees from using TikTok on government appliances, on government time, I think if it's going to be unlawful for United States employees, it should be prohibited for American teenagers. Okay, now we can address your question. Why is TikTok so different? So previous social media like Instagram, Instagram was all about connecting you with people you like, people you know, or people you'd like to follow, like celebrities that interest you. Connecting you with people you know or, or are interested in. That was, that was Instagram's business, business model, if you like. TikTok is radically different. TikTok says, we have no interest in who you know or who you like. All we want to connect you with is what you want. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What kind of things do you like to watch? And then they start showing you some videos, but they're watching you. The algorithm is powerful. Uh, 
And it's looking at what you watch and how long you watch it. And do you watch mm-hmm. it again? Do you repeat it? What, when do you switch to something else? What do you switch to? And it is customizing what it's offering you. And within an hour, it's showing you things that you didn't even know existed. And I have heard from so many teens who have said, TikTok knows me better than I know myself. TikTok knew I was gay before I did. TikTok knew I was trans before I did. And it sucks kids down a rabbit hole Mm -hmm. and it can change them. Is it always pushing them like to the more provocative? Is that pretty much what these algorithms do? Like, is it it always kind of edging them further and further down that rabbit hole? Or I guess, is there anything positive it's doing? Um, TikTok is highly addictive and it is addictive in a way that no other social media has been before. So um, TikTok is to Instagram as whiskey is the 3-2 beer. It is much more potent. And Gene Twenge now endorses a ban, certainly on TikTok, for children mm-hmm. under 18. And that's now when I'm speaking to parents, that's what I'm advising them. No TikTok. And that means you've got to install a parental monitoring app on your kid's device that limits what they can install. Uh, and I, when I speak to parents, we talk about those monitoring apps as well. And no smartphones for kids under 13 for sure. Mm-hmm. So I want to let me follow up on that. I've got a 14 year old girl. We, we waited till she was 14 to get her a smartphone. I would have liked to have waited forever. Um, but her answer, I mean, she had desperately wanted one for years because almost everybody she knew and everybody in her grade had had one probably since eight or nine years old. Uh, and her response was always, well, this is my social life. This is how kids connect. If you don't allow me to have a cell phone, uh, smartphone, then I will have no social life. How, you know, what is your advice on how do you respond to a kid that is saying that? I mean, because there is validity in what she is saying. Well, there are several responses. One response I would say is to change schools. Uh, again, I have visited over 460 schools over the last 21 years and a great many schools in the last few years. And you will find schools where that statement is true, where all the kids are connecting, not in person, but online. That's very unhealthy. And we now have so much data showing that when kids switch from in-person encounters to online encounters, the risk of anxiety and depression goes up enormously. It's not what humans are made for. We are hardwired to interact in person. And when you switch that to an online encounter, it's not satisfying. It's like switching from eating a meal to looking at a menu. Uh, It is not the same thing. And 14-year-olds don't understand this. And they and and they they wonder why if I'm spending three hours a day on social media, why am I so lonely? It's like saying, why if I spend three hours a day looking at a menu, why am I still hungry? It doesn't satisfy because mm-hmm. it reflects a profound misunderstanding of human nature. Uh, but you know, you can't blame the kids. Mark Zuckerberg uh, epitomizes this misunderstanding. He th- he truly believes, based on his statements, that. We will be happy in the metaverse, interacting virtually with virtual avatars. Okay, we can say with great confidence that that's false. Uh, That's not the way humans are. We are not digital entities. We are flesh and blood. Mm -hmm. A human being has more in common with a dog than it has in common with a computer. And what we need, you will learn more about what humans need by studying dogs than you will by studying computers. We need contact. We need food that you eat. We need to breathe fresh air. We need exercise, just like your dog does. And the notion that we will be happy in a metaverse interacting virtually with other virtual entities reflects just a colossal uh, misunderstanding of human nature. And only a billionaire could succumb to such a misunderstanding. Right. Who doesn't get out much. Um, exactly. Do, he doesn't so, get out of his bubble of mm-hmm. people who work for him and who bow down to him because he's a billionaire. And when he does get out of that bubble, for example, when he testifies before Congress, you realize how incredibly ignorant he is. Mm-hmm. Let's say there's a family who gave their kids cell phones when they were like 11. Um, and so they've had them a while. 
what what do you suggest? I mean, just stopping cold turkey saying, all right, son, hand over yes. the phone or limiting it because because they have it during the day. I wrote my book, The Collapse of Parenting, to encourage that parent. And I would encourage the parent to read the book or listen to the book. It's available as an audiobook. And the recommendation I have in that book is there's only one way to do it, and that's to go cold turkey. You say to your kids, hey, we've been doing some things wrong. We're going to make some changes. No more phones in the bedroom. Uh, no more devices at the dinner table. No more video games until all the chores are done and all the homework is done. And if you make that announcement, there will be an explosion. And the older the child, the louder and longer the explosion. But if both parents stand their ground after six weeks, you will have a child with better self-control and a happier child. Not after one week. The first week is really difficult. But after six weeks, and the key phrase in what I just said is both parents. Both parents have to stand their ground. Yeah. Uh, something along just to piggyback on the self-control. Um, I did I did go through the book again, which I had gotten a few years ago, um, that self-control is the best predictor at life satisfaction mm -hmm. and happiness. And I, I shared that with my kids because mm -hmm. I think that that's helpful for them to know that, you know, by exhibiting some of these behaviors now, it's actually going to help when you're, well, you know, next week, but 20 also, years down the road. Exactly. And so, um, and they, they listened. So it was, um, so that, that was very helpful. Yes, indeed. Uh, Self-control in childhood predicts health, wealth, and happiness 20, 30 years down the road, way better than anything else, better than grades or test scores, uh, better than friendliness, better than emotional stability. Mm -hmm. So you, your first mission as a parent has to be to teach self-control, virtue, character, and honesty to your kids. That's not a sermon. It's a robust empirical finding. I devote two chapters of my book, The Collapse of Parenting, to reviewing every relevant longitudinal cohort study, meaning studies where you follow kids from children until they're 32, 38, 40, 50 years of age. And every one of these studies comes to the same conclusion that teaching your kid to be self-controlled and honest predicts health, wealth, and happiness 20, 30 years down the, down the line. So that's got to be our first priority as parents. But the fact of the matter is that the majority, the vast majority of parents are as addicted to their cell phones as their children. And so you're checking your cell phone, even if you say, you know, you're checking your cell phone at the dinner table or at a restaurant or, you know. So again, in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, I say you cannot teach a virtue which you yourself do not possess. Right. In order to become a better parent, you're going to have to become a better person. If you want your kid not to be looking at their cell phone every five minutes, then you cannot look at your cell phone every five minutes. And that's one of the challenges of being a modern parent, which is that you have to become a better person. It, it's not easy. And in the closing chapter, I say, look, I am not I'm a paragon of virtue. I have done things wrong, including recently done things wrong. But that doesn't let you off the hook. You have to try. You have can, can you let's go back big picture in your three plus decades of of, you know, being a family doctor, observing, yeah, observing children and observing parents and families other than just social media. Now, TikTok, which is only a few years old, cell phones, which are a decade or so, 15 years old. What what, are, what, what do you think has changed in those 30 plus years you know, are parents very different? Are kids very yes. different? Parents are very different. And okay. and again, that's that's what my book, The Collapse of Parenting, is about. So again, um, let's talk about cheating on tests. 20, 30 years ago, it would have been common for parents to say, hey, I'd rather you get a C on the test honestly than cheat and get an A. That was a very common thing for parents to say 20, 30 years ago. But now, it's common to hear parents say, hey, you want to get into Princeton, you want to get into Stanford, you got to have amazing grades because you're not just competing against American kids anymore, you're competing against kids from Europe and Asia, you have amazing grades. And there's been an explosion in cheating over the last 20 years, which I document. 20 years ago, it would have been common to find a parent who would say to their kids, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's not a suggestion, that's a command, do unto others. But over the last 20 years, I've seen that command soften, morph into a question. And the question is often something like, well, you know, how, how would you feel if somebody did that to you? And the parent has no idea what to say when her son says, if someone did that to me, I'd kick him in the nuts and then I'd sit on his face. 
parents have gone from making commands, do unto others, to asking questions. How would you feel if someone did that to you? They have retreated. They have lost confidence in their own authority. And, you know, when I wrote the first edition, which I wrote in 2014, published in 2015, um, I, I explained how, you know, I would, I would really push parents on this point. And, and parents would often be, you know, kind of ashamed that they let their kids decide, that they let their kids call the shots because they kind of knew it was wrong. So the publishers invited me to write a new edition. There will be a second edition of The Collapse of Parenting. And I'm talking with the publisher about what's changed. And one of the big things has changed is that I'm now finding more and more parents who aren't ashamed. On the contrary, I find parents now who think it's virtuous to let kids decide. So just a week ago, a kid's in the a six-year-old girl's in the office with a fever and a sore throat. And I say, okay, we need to do a strep test. And the girl's, no, I don't want to. And she's got her mouth clenched shut. And I say, mom, would you, you assist me in doing a strep test? And mom said, her body, her choice. Mom is not going to help. Six-year-old girl wasn't want a strep test. There will be no strep test. And mom is not ashamed of her incompetence. Mom is proud that she's letting her kid decide, her body, her choice. And that's a really big change from just 10 years ago, just eight years ago. It would have, I, this never happened until like two or three years ago that now parents say, well, if she doesn't want to, then we're not going to do it. We're now finding a growing number of parents who, let it, who think it's virtuous to let their six-year-old decide, even though the parent knows that the decision the six-year-old is making is the wrong decision and that the six-year-old is not competent to decide whether or not to get a strep test. The six-year-old doesn't know that untreated strep can lead to rheumatic heart disease, which can be fatal. The six-year-old doesn't know that unnecessary antibiotics uh, are harmful. I don't expect a six-year-old to know that. It's the job of the parent to know those things and then to say to the kid, hey, I know you don't want to do it, but it's not that big a deal. And in life, sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do. That's what parents used to say, but a growing number of parents don't say that anymore. They say, her body, her choice. And you want to know where this is most dramatic? is transgender. Because we now have six-year-old boys who say they're girls 14-year-old girls who say they're boys. And instead of the parents saying, uh, okay, so I get it. You're a six-year-old boy. You love ballet, but yeah, you can study ballet, but you're going to study ballet as a boy, not as a girl. We now have parents who think it's actually virtuous to let the six-year-old make the call. We have an American Academy of Pediatrics whose official guidelines now say, if that six-year-old boy says he's a girl, then your job is to transition them, change Justin to Emily, change the birth certificate to Emily. Justin never existed. And those are now the official guidelines of the American Academy of Pediatrics enshrining the idea that the child knows better than the parent. This was unthinkable 10 years ago, and it's now official policy. We'll be back with more with Take Back Our Schools in a moment. Hey, James Lathic here, reminding you that just because the elections are over doesn't mean there's not stuff to talk about. There's lots. There's looking back at what happened. There's looking back at the stuff blowing up today and taking a look at the stuff that might be blowing up tomorrow. We'll talk about it all in the next Ricochet flagship podcast. Where is it coming from? I mean, you see a lot of this in schools where it's all about, you know, children, you know, learning alongside the teacher. And so there's, you've seen a lot of this in the education establishment, but in the home, I mean, is it a, a lack of, is this related to the lack of religiosity among families? It's like they've lost their center. Like, where's it coming from? I would argue that the lack of religion and this confusion actually derive from a deeper underlying process, which is the collapse of authority. 
the unwillingness to accept the idea that there is or should be such a thing as authority. And that's not my idea. That's, uh, that was the key idea in the work of a German sociologist named Norbert Elias, who wrote a very important paper, Über den Veränderungen in Archipäischen Verhandelsstandards in 20. Jahrhundert, regarding changes in European civilization in the last years of the 20th century is what he's talking about. And he, he asked, what's the biggest change that's occurring in Europe in the, in the last years of the 20th century? He said, it's the transfer of authority from parents to children. Parents are no longer confident of their authority. He used the word status und Sicherheit. Status, status und Sicherheit can be translated either status uncertainty or status unsecurity. Insecurity. Parents, they are uncertain. They're insecure. They don't know what authority they have. They're uncomfortable with the idea of authority. And that, I think, is the key observation. And he, he applies this to religion as well. The central and foundational idea of Judaism, of Christianity, is that there is a transcendent God and we are subordinate to him. Well, that idea is now offensive to the modern sensibility. As one atheist said recently, the Lord is not my shepherd. I'm not a sheep. Uh, that's a very appealing notion for the modern sensibility that I am captain of my own fate and I am subordinate to no one, that no human can tell any other human how to live, that I create my own virtue and my, my, my own morality. And well, if, if you believe that, then there can be no religion and parents can have no authority. And the six-year-old knows as well or better than the grown-up does about what's best for the six-year-old. That's the culture in which we now live, a culture in which the concept of authority has been undermined. And anyone who suggests that kids should submit to parents, that I should submit to a transcendent God, uh, the, the response you're likely to get is the response I got from a school principal who said, uh, Dr. Sachs, you're either an idiot, a Republican, or both. Okay. Um, a, a relentless politicization of every domain uh, of lived experience uh, so that uh, asserting that there is such a thing as authority or that you ought to submit to authority um, is... is uh, uh, something that only a Rockefeller Republican would believe, uh, that uh, populist Republicans and woke Democrats equally reject yep. the idea of authority, of transcendent authority. So there, there, there can be uh, no concept of parental authority because the child knows best what is mm -hmm. best for the child. Now, the problem with this is that it is profoundly psychotic. Uh, it it fails to comprehend what makes human childhood special. So what, what is childhood for? That's one of the questions I raise in my book, The Collapse of Parenting. A, a horse is a mature adult at four years of age. The Kentucky Derby is raced with three-year-olds. Uh, a four-year-old human has barely begun. So what is childhood for? It can't be about physical maturity because a horse is a bigger animal than a human and a horse is fully mature at four years of age. Why? Humans are developing. Humans are children or adolescents for most years than most animals live. Why? What's the point? Well, we don't have to guess. We have scholars who studied this, like Dr. Melvin Connor at Emory, who wrote this big 700-page scholarly monograph titled The Evolution of Childhood, comparing development in humans with development in other species, and especially in other primates like uh, monkeys and chimpanzees. Why, is development, why does development take so much, many more years in our species than in any other species? And the answer the researchers give is that because it takes many years for the grown-ups to teach the child, what the child needs to know. That's in our DNA for the parents mm -hmm. to teach the child. That's why childhood takes as long as it does. But the American Academy of Pediatrics has 
lost sight of this and mm-hmm. now asserts as their official guidance that the six-year-old knows better mm-hmm. than the adult, than the parent, what is best for the six-year-old. It is. You would think pediatricians would know. So that. how did how did yeah, we, I'm but, sorry, Beth, wait, hang on. How did we lose the medical community on this? I get how we lost parents, maybe, but how did okay. we lose the medical community? Unfortunately, the American Academy of Pediatrics became politicized. And I wrote about this for a website called Public Discourse a few years ago, specifically on this transgender issue, but it's true more broadly. And if you just Google my name, Leonard Sachs, and politicization or politicizing of pediatrics, you'll find my article. Uh, The American Academy of Pediatrics has drifted very far left. It's Mm -hmm. now very woke and very left. Um, And that's characteristic of many of the, quote, leading institutions of the United States today. It's true of uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education. It's true of many Fortune 500 companies. It's true of the American Academy of Pediatrics um, that they are now very far left of center uh, and their recommendations are based not in evidence, but in politics. Mm -hmm. So why do they recommend this? Because this is what the woke left recommends. And the American Mm -hmm. Academy of Pediatrics is now a mouthpiece of the woke left, unfortunately. Do you see international pressure possibly reining some of that in? Because I've read that other countries are kind of dialing yeah. back some of those recommendations. Do you do you think that that could have an impact? Indeed, Sweden, yeah. which one does not think of as a uh, socially conservative country, Sweden has put the brakes on these uh, transgender transitions for uh, children, and so have the Netherlands, and so has uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, and one would hope that at some point, American, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics would say, oh, if, if Sweden and the Netherlands and the United Kingdom think it's unwise to be giving these medications to 12-year-olds to transition uh, to the other sex, uh, maybe we should um, uh, pause and look for some evidence. But so far, there has been no change in the position of the American Academy of Pediatrics. If uh, uh, for a parent listening, if their kid came home to them and said, you know, I think I'm gay, I'm non-binary, I'm confused, I'm et cetera, et cetera. What would you tell that parent to do? Okay, you've just conflated two very different issues. You've conflated sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. I'm gay rather than straight with gender identity. I'm non-binary. I'm not the sex I was assigned at birth. Those are very different issues. And I would ask that parent to, uh, at the risk of sounding commercial, I would ask them to read the last four chapters of my book, Why Gender Matters, second edition, which are devoted to gender nonconforming, lesbian, gay, bisexual, Mm -hmm. transgender, intersex. Very often that boy who says he's a girl or that girl who says he's a boy, who says she's a boy is saying that because they are confused and they're confused because the culture has become confused. You know, I'm old enough to remember the era of Sally Ride 30 years ago, the first American woman to fly in space. And by the Sally Ride era, I mean the era when we told girls, girls can be anything. Girls can be combat infantry. Girls can be flight surgeons. Girls can do anything. Unfortunately, that's no longer the era in which we live. I think that was a great era, but it's gone. Today, if a girl says she wants to be combat infantry, my daughter, who's 16 years old, her dream is to fly combat aircraft for the United States Air Force. Her The, the ceiling of her bedroom is covered with F-22 fighter jets. Uh, uh, that's what, But people will say, oh, what are her preferred pronouns? Because the ironic consequence of this transgender activism is a hardening of gender stereotypes. So now if a girl wants to be combat infantry or a boy wants to do ballet, they're asking the girl, oh, uh, are you transitioning? They ask the boy, are you transitioning to the female role? No, a boy can do ballet. Mikhail Baryshnikov was a great dancer and he was a man. You don't have to be a girl to do ballet. You don't have to be a man to fly combat aircraft. So the, the, the weird, but not surprising consequence of this transgender activism is a hardening of gender stereotypes. Mm-hmm. If a girl doesn't like pink and doesn't like Barbies, oh, maybe she's non-binary. Uh, maybe we should change her pronouns. If a boy likes ballet and doesn't like football, mm-hmm. 
you know, maybe we should encourage him transition to the female role. It's a hardening of gender mm-hmm. stereotypes. It is unhealthy and it is psychotic. Well, some, I mean, in some cases, kids is, you know, in grade school are coming home because they are getting some of this gender ideology. And I don't think the kids necessarily can tell the difference between sexual orientation, gender, you know, identity, all of these terms that are, that are being bandied about. And so if a young kid comes home who probably does not know what they're talking about, is a parent, you know, obviously listen but in terms of, is it, do you, do you recommend, you know, listen to them and then kind of well, let it go it or is, like what? Yeah. You got to switch schools. Okay. <laughs> uh, the schools yeah. are uh, in many cases, vectors of this toxic ideology. And if your kid is at such a school, you need to get them out. It's every to switch school. to a different That's school. The and if you have to move, then move. And I'm not telling parents anything I didn't do myself. My wife and I thought we were infertile. We were married for 15 years before we had our first and only child. Um, And uh, when we discovered that uh, we're going to have a baby, uh, uh, we both agreed we have to move because we were not happy with the schools in Western Upper Montgomery County, Maryland. And so we moved. I sold my practice, had to start over, uh, get a new house four hours away in Chester County, Pennsylvania. But it was a wise decision, and I'm very happy with the schools here. If you can't find a a healthy, safe school for your kid, then you have to quit your job and move to somewhere else. It's a big country. There's There's lots of good schools out there. And I'm not telling you to do anything that I didn't do myself. If the school, if your kid's coming home from school, look, it is never appropriate to talk to a prepubescent child about sexual orientation. It is not age appropriate. It is unhealthy because a prepubescent child has no understanding of sexual orientation. And I know this from my own experience. I was once a prepubescent child. I vividly recall at eight years of age, I can see it clear as day. I can tell you exactly where I was in our house on Scottsdale Boulevard in Shaker Heights, Ohio, sitting next, standing next to the spinet when I looked up at my mom and I said to my mom, when I grow up, if I get married, do I have to t- take my PJs off in bed with the girl? And my mom said, yes, you do, but you will want to. And I said, no, I won't. Girls have cooties. Well, I turned out to be a straight man, but you cannot ask an eight-year-old about sexual orientation because mm-hmm. they don't have one, nor should they. Mm-hmm. A prepubescent child does not have a sexual agenda. And talking to them about lesbian, gay, bisexual is not mm-hmm. age appropriate. And again, many schools don't get that because a growing number of schools are driven by this very left of center woke ideology that mm-hmm. again is based not in evidence, but in ideology. It is unhealthy. If your kid's at such a school, you need to get them out. You need to enroll them at a different school. And if that means you have to move to a different state and find a different job, then that's what you have to do because your child has to be your first priority. I have, um, you know, as these conversations have gotten younger and younger, um, it has harkened back to me some things that I've read about the effects of porn on kids' brains that it actually can alter the way that they think. Is is there some, I guess, um, iteration of that happening by having these inappropriate conversations with kids about sex, about gender, with people who are not their parents? Is something like, should we be worried about that in terms of, is it, if it's going to alter their, like how they think? So I began my research career as a neuroscientist. I've published two papers in the Journal of Behavioral Neuroscience, but I am, very uneasy when people want to look at brain scans here. I don't think it's the correct level of analysis. The reason it's wrong to talk to kid, to six-year-olds about sexual orientation is because six-year-olds don't have a sexual agenda, nor should they have one. And I think that's the right level of analysis. Looking at brain scans sometimes can be helpful to Uh, inform or to understand a situation, but it should never be prescriptive. I don't think you should ever say you shouldn't Mm -hmm. do this because of what this brain scan shows. Mm -hmm. Our understanding of the brain is not sufficient to warrant that kind of of leap. Uh, And again, talking about pornography, uh, I encourage parents, I hope they'll take a look at the second edition of my book, Boys Adrift. Uh, 
first edition, 2007, didn't talk a lot about porn because I wrote that in 2006. The iPhone didn't come out till 2007. In 2006, it was not possible to pull up a million porn photos on your phone. In 2006, a portable phone, a mobile phone was for making a phone call. Well, now any 12-year-old can pull up unlimited, unlimited pornography on their smartphone. And so, yeah, it's a big issue. And parents must install software that will limit and, and uh, not allow their kid to pull up porn on their phone. And I, I explain why that is so. It's is so because porn degrades not only the woman, but also the boy who consumes it. Because porn perverts boys' expectations. I now have 15-year-old girls telling me that their 16-year-old boyfriend is demanding anal sex. And the 15-year-old girl is like, no, I don't want to. And the boy's like, oh, but the women really love it. And the girl's like, those are porn stars you're looking at. They're being paid. Let's try shoving something hard up your behind. Boys' expectations are being shaped in a very unhealthy way by pornography. We've got good research on this point. But I cite the research and the results with actual young men. One in three young men at university now report difficulty achieving or maintaining, maintaining an erection. 20 years ago, just 20 years ago, it was 4%, one in 25. It's now one in three. Why is that? A big factor is pornography. 30 years ago, boys weren't spending all their time looking at porn. Today, many boys are. And if a boy has spent all this time looking at porn, and now he's with an actual woman who doesn't resemble a porn star and isn't wearing lingerie, the salami may not stand up and salute. That's no, just the truth. The reality, uh, yeah, it's going to so, fail so in com- by comparison. I, I don't cite the brain scans. I cite the actual experience of real men mm-hmm. using porno, pornography. It's really harmful. And again, parents need to be in charge. Yeah, I mean, it's not it is not reasonable to say to a boy, well, you know, I'll let you decide whether to look at porn or not, because all his friends are looking at porn. And what is he supposed to say when his friends say, hey, did you see this? Is he supposed to say, well, I don't want to look at pornography because I believe pornography is degrading. Not only to the woman, but to the man who consumes it. Come on, it's ridiculous. You got to allow the boy to say, hey, my evil parents installed an app on my phone. If I try to download it, I'm going to lose my device. You have to understand what's age appropriate. And parents Mm -hmm. used to, and they no longer do. And parents need to be the bad guy, right? I mean, parents, they just have to. Yes. You have to be willing to be the bad guy, Mm -hmm. willing to let your son say, hey, I can't because my parents have installed this app on my phone. What the schools are saying uh, is the kids are consuming porn anyway. So therefore we need to explain it and teach it and expose the kids to it in a safer way than they would if we were not doing this. I mean, that that's. Yeah. Well, as I said, I have visited a great many schools and I've encountered a great many high schools where the health teacher is encouraging right. uh, kids to masturbate over pornography because at many American public high schools right now, and at many independent schools that are secular, Health class is now all about two things. It's about consent and sexually transmitted disease. So safe sex means you're not transmitting, you're not catching a sexually transmitted disease, and you're being sure to get consent at every stage in the sexual encounter. That's what it's all about. And if that's what it's all about, then masturbating over pornography is ideal because there's no risk of sexually transmitted disease and you don't have to worry about consent. And I have encountered many high schools now, secular independent schools and public schools where the health teacher is saying, hey, absolutely, masturbation's great. Let's talk about some good websites. Um, because if that's all that it's about, if that's, if that's all human sexuality is about, consent and not getting a sexually transmitted disease, then absolutely, it is an impoverished view of the human experience. Mm-hmm. It is it is pathetic and it is deeply sad that kids are being taught that that's all there is to human sexuality. That what should be an ennobling and transcendent experience is reduced to mm-hmm. masturbation. 
but that's what is happening right now in many American schools. That's why I say to parents, the choice of school is the most consequential choice that you will make in the life of your child. Their attitude toward every subject, their peer group, the likelihood that they will use drugs or alcohol, the likelihood that your daughter's gonna get pregnant is influenced by the choice of school more than by any other decision you make in the life of your child. That's why the school is immensely important. That's why if your kid's at the wrong school and there's no good school in your neighborhood, then you have to move. You have to quit your job and move to another state. As difficult as that is, and I'm saying this, as I said, from firsthand experience, because the choice of school is immensely consequential. Well, as, as co-hosts of the podcast called Take Back Our Schools, we have no disagreement with that. <laughs> well, fascinating conversation. We, as parents, I think, have our work cut out for us, and we need to do more. Uh, schools are a big part of this issue. Um, but thank you. We want to thank you for coming on to Take Back Our Schools. Uh, your experiences, you know, three-decade-plus experience, seeing the changes that has happened to children, to families, to parents is invaluable. And we certainly encourage people to go and read your books, which we will note in our in our podcast notes. So thank you very well, much for joining us. Yeah, I hope you'll include a link to my website, leonardsachs.com, where people yep. can email <laughs> me and uh, I'll do my best to respond. Thank you. All right. Thanks again. Well, I remember hearing him a few years ago. He came to my son's school uh, and that was, I, I remember liking what he was saying and, and I'd say the same for the last, you know, 45 or so minutes. I think he's no nonsense, which I really appreciate. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of tried and true um, advice and, and philosophy that he has, but I think, I think parents need to hear it. Yeah. I mean, it, this is in every school. And that and that's the one thing I would and I sort of said that I didn't you know we didn't go in that direction but there's almost no school in the United States that's exempt from the kind of things we talked about on this episode with him uh, I think maybe if you go very far religious whatever your religion is you can avoid this but not even completely mm -hmm. uh, in today's day and age so I, look the advice that you got to change schools obviously I agree with that since mm -hmm. we did that everybody knows that but just to you know you're not avoiding this. No, and, and but I think, the, the, yeah, that. but his message, I mean, so, so switching schools, if, if, if possible, and if that's going to solve the problem, um, you know, I would agree with, and yes, it's going to be hard to find a school like that. What I took away more is parents do your job. I mean, that parents have abdicated in so many different ways and that they, you know, remember what you're supposed but to do. That's not helpful advice. What you have it's to, not helpful I mean, advice. What does Wait, that mean? Do explain job? yourself. So what is not helpful about no, parents? I mean, you were shame, a parent, you were a child, shaming. I have authority, you don't. Um, I'm doing this because I love you, by the way. And by the way, I know more because I'm, you know, whatever, 25, 30, 35 years older than you. And Sha I've done, No, no, I've, I don't disagree with that. But I, I, I don't think, you know, shaming parents hmm. is helpful. And I think this is society. I think this is a lot bigger. I and mean, we talked about this a little bit. I mean, this is but, okay. From Let schools. me push this back on the not shaming parents. Is that yeah. not kind of getting to the heart of the problem that we're too worried about what parents are going to feel versus just saying something that well, is I, true and helpful? But is it helpful? I don't think that's shame. I don't think that's is shaming helpful? people. That's the question. To say parents do better. Is that helpful? Yes. Is it? I would say so. Okay. Do better what? I, calling a spade. I mean, I think it's calling a spade a spade. I Here's the problem. Here's the problem. This, what the schools are doing, and we don't really disagree on this, but we're just just reading a little bit to make it more interesting. It's good right, podcast. With, <laughs> right, right. It's, it's better podcast. Um, the, what the schools are doing is separating it, the kids from the parents. If we, this is what's where it gets very tricky because it, it, this this helps do that. In other words, if you if if we give advice to parents, you've got to take your cell phone away. It's inc it's impossible. I wish that were the case. If, if if government banned it, maybe that's the right way to do it. That's a very complicated conversation. Maybe that needs to happen. But if we just tell parents you got to take the cell phones away, they do it. They lose their kids. Well, and where do the kids go? The kids are going to. They're going to find it. They're going to find pornography. They're going to find TikTok. It is impossible. Yes. And, well, and we, so we can live in a dream world. 
Mm-hmm. In, in a utopian world where parents do their jobs like they used to, or you have other moral authorities, religion or, or other authorities, uh, but that's not reality today. So I'm not sure that the, the the advice of parents do better, take your cell phones, kid cell phones away, is helpful right now. That's where I'm coming from. Even though I think deep down we agree that these are the issues. Yes. I guess what I heard you saying was that we need to package this in a way that parents are going to not feel bad about all of the bad decisions that they've made. And, you know, I think parents should look at how they've parented and say, what have I done wrong? What do I need to fix? And and I do think it's possible, maybe not cold turkey. That is, that is difficult to say, okay, you've had a cell phone for four years now, and now you're not going to have one, but to do two and three hour breaks to put real limits on that, because here's what I think does happen. And it was, you know, we began with this Massachusetts school that banned cell phones and all of a sudden the kids started feeling better. I think that kids, when they give a, get a break, which they're not going to take on their own, likely they will feel better. And that that is what could help um, create perhaps a momentum. And so I know it's not, this isn't easy, but, and I agree, it's not going away, but we have to, we have to keep trying, you know, various tactics because what, I mean, otherwise TikTok will continue its rampage through the American teenage brain and it's not going to end well. No disagreement there. No, it's not. And, and banning TikTok may be something that absolutely has to happen. Um, whether that's possible, it might be possible just because the Chinese connection to it. No, no, none of these things are easy. There's no question about that. But these are, again, you know, I come back to these are, you know, societal problems. They're not just parenting problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously schools play a big part in this. There's a pessimism, I guess, that comes through here. No. That, yes, yes. You know, that these are not, these are now become very entrenched, these issues. And I'll come back to this. Unless you go back to an economic model that allows a single income household, we don't fundamentally fix any of these issues. And I don't see us coming back to that. No. With any I, you know, reasonable likelihood. No. Uh, and that's I, part of it. Parents are busy, two parents working. You don't have dinner together anymore. Mm-hmm. Parents are on their cell phones. They are getting work emails and texts, you know, during dinner time and at night. So they can't necessarily model better behavior that we would like them to model. So, you know, these aren't these are big issues. All right, I'm off my soapbox. Okay, because we should probably wrap. We should wrap up. Okay. On that note, I guess it's up to me to wrap. Okay. Well, it was an interesting conversation um, with Dr. Sachs. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe. Please like us. Please review us. Please share us. We'd appreciate that. And on behalf of my co-host, Beth Feely, I am Andrew Gutman, and we will talk to you soon on another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.